We're going to be reading Matthew uh, chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable for judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to hellfire. And so if you are offering your gifts to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and, then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge, hand, and the judge to the guard and you'll be put into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will, never get out of, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we continue this morning in our series titled Sermon on the Mount, we find ourselves in the first of six antithesis statements made by Jesus. Now, if you haven't listened to Aaron's sermon last week, I highly recommend you go back and do so, as his text really kind of sets the stage for this week and next week. Uh, but for those of you who are new, or if you missed last week, I'll just give you a brief update to, to bring you up to speed. Now, looking back at verse 17, we read the following. It says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Aaron mentioned last week that the law and prophets were terms used to describe the Tanakh, also known as the Old Testament for you and I. Now Jesus, at this point, had already said enough to get him kicked out of most synagogues. And he's going to come to this verse, verse 17, as a launching pad to basically reinterpret the law of Moses. Catch this, you guys. In saying that he came to fulfill the law, Jesus effectively declared himself to be God and mediator. Jesus offers us his righteousness for all who believe and takes on the sin for all who fall short. So over the next two weeks, we're going to look at these several commandments, these antithesis statements that would have been well understood by the crowds surrounding Jesus and even his disciples, only to find that Jesus approaches them vastly different than they would have expected. He internalizes, he intensifies in ways that would have been impossible to achieve and impossible to administer. And so as we're going to start this morning, we're going to start with anger. Nothing like diving into an easy topic on Father's Day. And no, this is not a subtle dig at fathers. Uh, this is not a Father's Day sermon. Uh, I mean, look at Matthew 5. There's, there's not many good options there. Um, no, this is a sermon for all of us. Um, and by way of preface, I actually think it has a lot more to do with love or misguided loves than it has to do with anger. But let me set the stage for you, so that way we're all on the same page. The, the Israelites of Jesus' day would have been vastly familiar with the text he's about to read from. They would have been very familiar with the law and its charges. They would have understood murder was sin. And they would have also known Deuteronomy 6.5, which read, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. What they would have called the Shema. They, they would have known this. They would have been taught this and trained this from a young age. And along with this, they would have known Leviticus 19.18. It says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And eventually we're going to see Jesus take these two 
and effectively make them the greatest of the commandment, the first and the second, to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as thyself. Yet in spite of all of this, no one from the crowd, and not even his disciples, could have imagined how Jesus was going to redefine the law. See, like, like those in Israel, we too struggle with anger. And it's easy to see why. We live in a world that promotes hatred for viewership. A world that clings to sound bites and phrases designed to shut people down. And we deal with illness, with disaster, with tragedy, and with loss. And it can be overwhelming at times not to be swallowed up by it. I struggle with it deeply. And we have to deal with our own hearts on top of that. Hearts that sometimes turn on us, that cast us down, that belittle us. Others of us deal with hearts that are too proud to fail, angered at what we see as rampant incompetence or apathy. What's more, anger is often driving us in far more ways than we realize, only to explode onto the very people we love in the worst possible ways. Ever had those moments? I'm sorry, I, I don't know what happened. I don't know why you're receiving it right now. There's hope. There's hope, and it deals with our loves, oddly enough. Here's the big idea. Since Jesus first loved us, we are freed in Christ to love one another. And I know that sounds simple, but it is incredibly profound in practice. For I believe that we are loving one another and are called to love one another and can only love one another when we do two things. One, respond to the love of God. And that will push us to forgive one another. Let's go ahead and take a look at our text this morning. Verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, for whoever murders will be liable to judgment. This is the phrase, this is the first of the six antithesis statements that Jesus makes. And he's about to redefine it for us all. Now, as we dive into this text, it's important to remember the original author and the original audience. Okay, is that, That's going to help us understand the meaning of this text. To start with, notice the phrase, you shall not murder. Ever heard of it? There's a good chance you have, because it's the sixth commandment, right? Okay, so most people know the Ten Commandments. They know something's in there, Ten Commandments. Well, if, if you were the original audience, if you were a Jew of this time, and for Jesus, you would have absolutely known this was dealing back, hearkening back, to one of the core foundational commandments that was given to Moses. Okay, but it also would have jogged your memory if you were of that original audience, because you would have thought of the original covenant makers. So roughly 1,400 years before the birth of Christ, 3,400 years for us, to a time when Moses received these commandments from God. And he gave them to a newly freed people. People who had just been released from captivity in Egypt. And he gave them to him on a mountain called Sinai. And this is where the covenant was initially established between God and the people of Israel. It was, it was given terms. And the covenant sat as the foundation of those terms. So the ones of old, those are the original people, the men and women there, the original guarantors of that covenant. And see, at this point, these commandments, they had become core to the Jewish scriptures themselves. To be a Jew meant to live under the law. And these commandments form the foundation of that law. So when Jesus evokes this phrase, you have heard that it was said of old, this is no small thing for an Israelite. He's going back to the core promise. He's going back to the very beginning. He's going back to the establishment of the covenant. He's got their attention. 
And this is what he says. The law you received from Moses, the one given to you on Mount Sinai, I alone have the authority to interpret it and to give it. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, as a Jewish teacher, you would never say this. You would never say this, because to do so would be to declare yourself greater than Moses. And Moses was the greatest prophet. But Jesus already said that he came to fulfill the law. Which means Jesus is boldly proclaiming himself to be greater than Moses. Continue with me in verse 22. But I say to you, this is Jesus now speaking, internalizing, and intensifying the law. I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So having described what his disciples in the crowd had heard of old, what they knew of old, they understood the law and the commandments. Note how quickly Jesus internalizes and intensifies. Whereas before the line was murder and the payment was judgment, now the line is anger. This is the internalizing effect that he's bringing. Anger. And the payment is the hell of fire. This is the intensifying effect. Now, some commentators have pointed out there seems to be an ascending sequence implicit in Jesus' teaching. He moves first from anger and internal anger to insult. The Greek word there is raka, which effectively would have meant something like empty-headed. Okay, To actually calling someone, the third thing, to actually calling somebody a fool. Now, calling someone a fool in that scenario for a Jew was similar to calling somebody godless. And that would have been a tremendous accusation to anyone living under the covenant. But effectively said, you stand apart from the people of God. But regardless if you see an ascending sequence or not, Jesus' intent seems on showing the seriousness of anger in all of its forms. From the lesser to the greater, from the internal to murder. All worthy of judgment. Now I know what some of you are thinking. Brian... One can be angry and not sin. And that's true. The word anger should not be misapplied to include every instance of anger. For Jesus himself will, will later express anger in, um, without sin, mind you, Matthew 21, when he overturns the merchant tables in the temple. And Paul himself in Ephesians 4.26 will say, be angry yet do not sin. So the, the two are not mutually exclusive. But if we're honest... Our anger is often a mix of motives. And if you're like me, all you need to do is spend a few minutes driving around town, right around 4 o'clock in Edwardsville, to get rid of any pretense that you don't have anger. <laughs> this verse speaks to you and me. Okay. Now, it's important we understand what Jesus meant when he used the phrase, hell of fire. Translated literally, it means the Gehana, Gehana of fire. Now, Gehana was a valley in Jerusalem, okay? And this valley had a reputation, okay? Earlier, after the fall of the kingdom in, in 586, you had a season, a transitional period, where you didn't really have just Jews living there, you had Canaanites living there, and it was a place where people would offer human sacrifice, okay? So not a great place to go. You wouldn't vacation there, you wouldn't visit. During the time of Jesus, that human sacrifice area had turned into a garbage dump. Seems appropriate. In that garbage dump, what they would do is they would heap the trash together and then they would burn it, okay? And so when Jesus is making this comment of the Kahana of fire, 
he's pointing to the local dump that's constantly burning. And most commentators assume that this reference is to hell. And indeed, our translation even makes this explicit. But don't miss what Jesus is doing here. He, he has the attention of his disciples. And he has the attention of the crowd that's gathered to him. And in this crowd, there would have been teachers and lawyers and peasants and merchants. Anyone you can imagine. They're all coming to Jesus for answers. They, they want to know. Some are wanting to justify themselves and others are wanting to accuse their enemy. And yet look what Jesus does. He doesn't give any of them what they expect. He declares himself rather to be the sole authority over the law, which no one would have assumed. And then says he's the only one who can rightly interpret it. And in interpreting it, he internalizes it to include anger, which, by the way, everyone would have been guilty of in that circle. And then intensifies it to include the hell of fire, knowing none would be able to escape that. Which leads me to conclude, if we're being honest, this is an odd way to increase the size of your crowd. Unless, of course, that's not your point. Unless, of course, Jesus had a different goal. Look at the crowd from the perspective of Jesus now. He's looking at a people who had grown so accustomed to performing the external duties of the law that they had missed the internal worship of God. They were so focused on not being guilty of the letter of the law, on not murdering, they had forgotten the greater call to love their neighbor. They had become so directed on their performance for God, they had missed loving God from the heart. Guys, this is tragic, and it happens all the time. It happens in our churches, happens in our pews, happens in our hearts. We become a covenant people of God, but we miss the heart of the covenant. And so Jesus was doing everything to get their attention. And he did. Okay, growing up in a family of three boys, there was a never-ending supply of energy. And with that energy came a never-ending supply of conflict. I grew up in a family of three boys. And if you made it through a day and you didn't get hit, that was a good day. Okay? Like, the bar was pretty low for us. <laughs> if you have brothers, you understand this. And so you learned early on, how do you game the system, right? So mom's going to come to you, and, and, and one punch is a timeout, two is no TV for a day, and you're kind of measuring. You're like, I think I can manage no TV for a day. I think it's worth that. And we had this saying, and it wasn't unique to us, and, and it was something we said over and over again, especially when we couldn't afford another timeout. Uh, and it went something like this. You probably heard it. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but... Words can never hurt me, okay? Or will never hurt me. Now, this phrase was a helpful little phrase as a young teen, especially when someone got a dig on you and you had no more timeouts to spare. For that phrase, you could kind of brush off the comment and, and still believe you got the better of the exchange. But how, how many of us live our lives as if that silly little saying were true? as if words, much less thoughts, didn't hurt us. We live as if our words or our thoughts didn't hurt us. See, if we're honest, we're not that much different from the disciples and the crowd that surrounded Jesus. We too like to justify ourselves before God. We too like to point to our behavior. Some of us as a moral person, some of us as a kind person, someone as a person who stands up for reason or justice or, or truth. And yet we harbor anger 
and maybe even hatred towards those we disagree with. Hatred against fellow image bearers, even believers. Believing the lie that our thoughts couldn't possibly hurt us, couldn't possibly betray us. Guys, catch this. When when Jesus intensifies and internalizes the law, he makes it so that no one is left untouched by it. All of us are guilty. And all of us are liable unto its consequence. You see, when Jesus raised the bar, it would have astounded the crowd, and if we're honest, it should astound us. There's no getting over it. There's no getting past it. Which is why Christ's fulfillment of the law is so foundational. In effect, if if Jesus didn't create a new people in himself, if he didn't create a new people in himself, we would be without hope. If we remained unable to connect to the source of love through his death and resurrection, if we did not receive that promise by faith, then we would be a people to be most pitied. But since we are a new creation in Christ for those who trust, for those who have faith, we actually have freedom to now live in love. We actually have the ability, albeit unperfectly, to live out the kingdom ethic to love our neighbor. And we do it through faith. And we do it through faith in the one who does it perfectly. And so we see, to love others, we must first respond to the love of God through faith. Otherwise, we could have all the other loves we wanted, but they wouldn't outweigh the anger or the hatred we still have in our hearts. And so to love others, we must first love God and respond to God's love through faith. It's where it all begins. But it doesn't stop there. The call to love others, right? This, this commandment's not merely about just putting to death anger. It really is about love, responding and giving. And that giving is going to push us into forgiving one another as well. Look with me in verse 23. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now imagine, if you will, you're coming into worship. Everything's ready. Offering set. Voices warmed up. You were singing in the car because you were in a jolly mood. Because you weren't driving at 4 p.m. in Edwardsville. <laughs> and as you enter the congregation, you're feeling ready for worship. You look on stage and, and you see Jeff. It's your favorite person leading worship and you're in love. You look at the bulletin. Notice your favorite pastor's preaching. And you think to yourself, today's a good day. Okay, Spouse leans over and says, hey, I've taken care of lunch. And it's your favorite meal. You think to yourself, today's a very good day. And then out of the corner of your eye, you see that person. Yep, the one you had a bit of a problem with last week and said some things you shouldn't have. There they are, coming into the sanctuary, the same as you. And so not to ruin your day, you make sure not to look over there again. Blinders are on. And at the end of service, you walk out the door quickly because you don't want there to be any situation where you'd have to say something. You're not going to deal with them today. Not on a good day. Not doing it. Now, for some of you, I've described your life right now. And I'm sorry. I've been there, and it sucks. 
But for all of us, me included, I've described emotions we've all felt, are feeling, or will feel in the future. And here's why. The kingdom of God, the people of God, are made up of broken and sinful people in need of a Savior. And praise Jesus, we have one in him. See, when Jesus gave us the example of one offering a gift, only to remember they're wrong while there, it, it struck me. That person was likely going to worship, and when they went to worship, they saw the person they had a beef with. And that's what jogged the memory. They looked at him. Oh, yeah, I forgot. I had said some crude things to that person or was quick-tempered on social media. And by giving us this scenario, I think Jesus is subtly communicating to his disciples, the crowd, and even to us, your greatest problem isn't out there. It's often in here, in our hearts, in a heart that doesn't want to be reconciled, but would rather be justified. Now, the word reconciled speaks of a broken relationship that must be healed, but it also denotes intimacy, which along with the inclusion of the word brother indicates that the two in question shared a friendship prior to their dissolution. Additionally, the language of brother reflected a long-held Jewish tradition that believed that all Jews were part of the same community of God. Thus, it's appropriate to say the language of brother denotes those within the household of faith, the church, your brothers and sisters. Now, catch the word Jesus uses as we move through this passage. In verse 24, using the imperative mood, he says, leave. And then he goes on to say, come, quickly. I missed a go in there somewhere. There it is. Come with modifier quickly, the adverb quickly, and then it goes going again. So within two sentences, well, effectively within two verses, you've got four action-packed verbs. The case is the imperative mood. The command means that these verbs are urgent and duty-bound. And catch what's, what's happening here. He says we are to leave and go. We are to be lead askers and lead givers of forgiveness. And we're to do it quickly, to not let time become something that bridges or becomes something that, that makes it impossible to bridge that gap. We are to be quick in seeking out reconciliation, especially with those we hurt, especially those within the household of faith. We are to move towards forgiveness, even with those who have caused us great anger and distress. And now I know what you're thinking. That sounds great, Brian. But you don't know the problem I had with this person. You don't know the things they said. Here's what I do know. Forgiveness is only made possible if we recognize the forgiveness we have been given. That's it. If you have not received forgiveness from God, it will be downright impossible to extend forgiveness to others. But if we choose to forgive one another as we have been forgiven, then there's hope for reconciliation. Okay, so here's a question. What does it look like in practice? How do we live out this kingdom ethic? How do we love God and forgive others? How do we seek reconciliation with people we have hurt or been hurt by? And what happens, Brian, when the people who hurt us don't see the wrong they've done? What then? What then? Now, these are difficult questions. And in my experience, none of them come with easy answers. But we are given principles. And I have one to share with you this morning, along with a few others next week. And the first principle, and probably the most important principle for a believer, is this. 
Forgiveness is an invitation to trust. See, when something happens that I have no control over, it's easy for me to go to one of two places, anger or despair, and oftentimes both. And I'm angrily despaired. But as a believer in Christ, I have another option on the table. I can trust that God goes before me, that he will sustain me through whatever he has for me, and I can trust that he goes with me so I never walk it alone. Now, those are profound words. And unless you've lived it out, they're just going to go in one ear and out the other. So to help bolster this idea, I'm going to share with you one of my favorite stories from the Bible. A story that took place long before Moses was on the scene. In fact, it took place long before Israel even stepped into Egypt. And it centers on a man named Joseph. Now, Joseph was the son of Jacob, and Jacob was one of the first patriarchs of the Jewish faith. He was also the son of the late mother, Rachel, a woman his father Jacob loved deeply and held in high esteem. I encourage you to read the story. It's fantastic. He has to work for his father-in-law, Laban, for basically 14 years in order to marry this girl. But when Joseph was little more than a teen, he was sold into slavery. Now, he was sold into slavery by his brothers, right? Because they were jealous of him. They didn't want him around. They didn't like his coat. It was multicolored. And this caravan came, and it took him, and it traded him. And eventually that caravan landed in Egypt, and, and he was sold. And he was bought for a price. I think it was like 20 pieces of silver or something like that. And he became a servant in the house of Potiphar. And eventually his integrity would land him in jail, but that's a different story. The Lord eventually guided him, and he made his way unto Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the king, the leader of all of Egypt. And he had sought Joseph because Pharaoh was having dreams that no one could interpret. And to the shock of everyone, Joseph could interpret them. And as a result, Joseph was quickly given rule over the kingdom, up to and only second to the command of Pharaoh. Now a famine hit the land, and the region was severely impacted, except for Egypt. For Joseph, having prophesied that a famine would come, that was the dream that the Pharaoh was having, Joseph made plans to keep the storehouses full during those years leading up to the famine. And so in this way, Egypt became the power during the famine because all nations had to trade with her to get grain, to get food. And as you can imagine, eventually his brothers would come to Egypt in search of food. And let me set the stage for you. The, the brothers, the ones who had sold Joseph into slavery. Okay, just pause. We, we have conflict within our families. Most of us have not been sold into slavery by our brothers. Just putting that out there. It's not to minimize the conflict you have. It is to say the Bible understands conflict. They come in, and they're standing before Joseph with their need. And they don't recognize him. They don't recognize Joseph, because the last time they saw him, he was a child in a pit being sold to a caravan. Now look at Joseph. He's a leader in the Egyptian command. He's second only to Pharaoh. And he's standing before his brothers with nothing but power and ability. By his word alone is their fate held. And he does remember that. So let's go ahead and pick up the story from here. Genesis chapter 45, verse 1. 
Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence! So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him. And Pharaoh's household heard all about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were unable to answer him because they were terrified of his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been a famine in the land and for the next five, there will be no plowing and no reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made my father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. You know, when I am struggling, and I struggle often, going back to the Bible is a non-negotiable, because it reminds me of the heart of God. This is why it's important to have the word on your mind and heart daily. Because you once again feast on the reality of who God is, the love he has, the control he shows, and the mercy he gives. Let that sit with you this morning as an encouragement. I know some of you are bearing incredible loss right now, and others of you tremendous joy. But for each of us, I want to leave you with a trust in the Father, a desire to trust in our Heavenly Father. Know that the Lord carries you. Know that he draws paths we can't possibly see the end of. And when we're standing on the beginning of it, it's really, really dark sometimes. But like Joseph and the men who have come after him, there's a reason. Most of which we'll never know on the side of, of heaven. Some of which becomes clear in time. But let the truth remain. Do not let bitterness take root in your heart. Don't. If Joseph would have let bitterness take root in his heart, there's no possible way he would be able to stand before his brothers in a position to save them. Therefore, confess your need before Christ who is faithful and just to meet you. Cling to the love of God and you will be surprised what his love does in you and through you. As we close our time this morning, I want to examine once more the place that Jesus has in all this. And to do so, I'm going to look back at the Israelites. Note, the Israelites had the covenant and the law, the prophet and the law. It all began with verse 17 when, when Jesus said, I, I come to fulfill this. And then he starts taking their commandments and changing them. Not changing them, fulfilling them. Here's the thing, they had the commandments, but they remained unable to fulfill it themselves because those commandments then and remain today, they are impossible to fulfill unless you are sinless. And none of us are sinless. None of us are righteous. 
See, when Jesus said, I, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, right, two groups that knew the law, that practiced the law, that lived to the letter of the law, he said, you'll never enter the kingdom. So unless you're better than them, you're not entering the kingdom. And here's the thing, Jesus wasn't lying. He, he wasn't engaged in hyperbole. He was telling everyone in that crowd, the lawyers, the teachers, the peasants, the merchants, and you and me, none of us can stand justified in our works. We can't do it. None of us enters the presence of God apart from faith in him. And all of this requires repentance. It requires repenting from sin. It requires repenting from our self-righteousness and turning to the source that can save. So for those of you who are outside of the household of faith this morning, let me once again cast the invitation to meet Jesus. Jesus stands as king, having fulfilled everything in the law that you and I could never fulfill. Jesus stands as a friend, willing to take your sin in exchange for his righteousness. Jesus stands as God, willing to give you a new heart and a mind that doesn't have to be enslaved to the power of sin and death. For those of you in Christ, I invite you this morning to trust. To trust that he is working through all things, including the people he has placed you around. Including the difficulties in your life. Including the conversations you wish you didn't have to have. And that he's working all those things for your good. Because that's what he does for those who trust in him. And I pray that you would allow and trust him to allow you to forgive as you have been forgiven. And as we conclude, I want to acknowledge his is the only power that frees us to live out this kingdom ethic. His. His is the only strength great enough to allow us to love our enemies, which we're going to get into next week. And his is the only power to release us from our anger when we feel justified in holding on to it. And so I say to all of you, come, let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for your word. I thank you for the promise that you've given, that you came to fulfill the law. You did not abolish it. And by doing so, you became a great mediator between us and God. You have brought us in. You've drawn us close. You've given us life. You've taken our sin. And now we're free to walk in righteousness. We're free to love others as we have been loved. We're free. Father, I want to lift up those in this room who are struggling right now with anger, with lack of forgiveness, feeling hurt, feeling condemned. Father, I pray that your word would minister to them, that your presence would draw near to the brokenhearted, Father, that you may be glorified, that we may experience joy, and that your church may flourish here on this earth. Father, I pray that we would be a people who are loved and love well. Having been forgiven of much, we forgive much. Jesus, center our eyes on you. Center our hope on you. Center our loves on you. And we ask this in your name. Amen.